0: Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalised keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewellery whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for christmas or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time crafted arts is the business for you if you want to know more or see what they have in stock then you can visit them locally at 29 high street barry phillic morgan cf627 eb or you can go onto to their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk you can even email them at info at or maybe just give them a call at 4 double seven eight nine nine four two four eight. Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about Creative Space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film, or even theatre. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So, do you want to have experience in making jewelry? Do you want to pick up a hobby, but? not know what to take or where to start then look no further than the veil jewelry workshops veil jewelry workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry they will help you make a range of silverware including rings bracelets and many more pieces you will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering texturing shaping and lots more not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well so if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewelry and if you're very interested go on to their website at www.veildewerryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at or even phone at zero double seven eight nine seven nine four two four eight. Hello everyone and welcome back to Creative Space Podcast for the 20th episode and also a one year anniversary to this day or roughly to this day where I first released and got the Creative Space Podcast going. It's been one hell of a journey and one big full circle to come around and just look back and reflect on what I've done so far. I know some of you guys are probably wondering that the 20th episode, 20 episodes is not really that much. Why couldn't I have done it on the 50th or why I couldn't do it on the 100th? But it's because it's a a one-year anniversary. I really wanted to celebrate it because the journey I've had from start to where I am now, it it has been one quite of a journey, I I must say, because I've been going through a lot of personal issues. And also being on this big roller coaster ride, full of ups and downs, ins and outs. And when I first started this podcast, I was I was not in the best frame of mind. I was really down. I, I was missing a lot of things. There was a there was a hole in my life. So I am really glad that I can actually get back into live Theatre, getting back on the stage, writing loads of projects and even now I've got a lot of projects on the go which I'm very very happy about and delighted and I will share some of the information with you uh, when everything is all confirmed and all good to go you know uh, that's what I want to do and I'll let you know when that exciting moment or moments are happening so I just wanted to say a big 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 thank you to everyone Uh, My fans, my followers, you know, who've been following Creative Space Podcast since the very first day, I want to say to you guys, thank you so much for supporting me, supporting Pippa, who I'll mention in a moment, just supporting this channel, just getting everything off to a good running start, and I hope that you guys keep following me. And I promise I will get you more podcast episodes, more guests to come in the future. I could guarantee that. But I just wanted to say guys thank you from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. Pippa, Philippa howell my co-host, my second in command, my right-hand woman, my confidant, my dear friend. You know, she's she started out as a guest on episode four of the podcast but ever since then I've really enjoyed talking about a lot of things I mean you can see how long we we go on for in our episodes together and she was just fit for the podcast show she really was and she's a really dear friend of mine I was really grateful that she she said yes and she always brings ideas to the table and she always brings something something new something different and I was I was really grateful for her to come on board and and do this with me so without her I I do know what to do I couldn't have done this on my own so Pippa if you're Listening to this, I, I really thank you a lot. Thank you so much. Also, I want to thank my sponsors, Crafted Arts and Veil Jewellery Workshops. They are run by the same woman, who is none other than Gemma Robertson. Gemma, I, I just want to say a big thank you to her because she's not only uh, the, the the person behind my sponsors, but she's also a very dear friend of mine. She's a family friend. She is very close with my mum, and you know the two have been a lot together. They've grown up together. And, you know, without her supporting this channel, I did not know where I would go with this. You know, there's a lot of people i got to thank for. And I just wanted to say, Gemma, thank you so much for continuing to support this podcast for the next six months. So in total, it's going to be nine months of supporting, nearly a year of supporting the uh, of the podcast. So I just wanted to say a big, big thank you to you. But now let's get on to the podcast episode. So episode 20, me and Lisa Crone on the podcast we've talked about a lot of things and we've talked about her plays like two and a half minute ride well you know all all the plays that she's done and also the musical that she did uh, which was called Fun Home. It, it was an underdog story for that musical because it was starting out in a small uh, theatre venue with only 750 seats, compared to other Broadway shows that have thousands and thousands of seats. You know, this was an underdog story that went on to win Best Musical at the Tony Awards, and she is a Tony Award-winning playwright, and she's won two Tony Awards. So I, I won't go into so much detail on what she's done and everything that it's down to the podcast itself, but we've talked about a lot of things in including Gavin and Stacy. You know we had a long chat about Gavin and Stacy. Let me tell you. So, without further ado, guys, I just want to say thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was me and Lisa on Creative Space Podcast. There it is. <laughs> got it. Lisa Crone on my podcast. Um, I know that when I first sent out the request, it was a couple of months ago. And, and I completely, in all in no offense, I completely forgot all about it as well because I've sent out so many requests.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I completely forgot. And my fiance, as we were talking before the recording, said, you've got to get on the show.
1: <laughs>
0: um, but one of the things I was really intrigued by is not not just the, the fact that you've written many well-known and very successful plays and especially the musical fun on which we get down to but the one thing is that you, your background especially uh, with your parents because when I was doing the research what really intrigued me is how very uh, how strong personalities from what I gathered that your mother and father were they were very strong personalities so mm-hmm. Um, I was just wondering. Now I rarely do this because I normally jump jump to the gun and say, "Right, let's talk about your career." But I really want to know about your your background and uh, especially about your mother and father. Could you please um, tell us more about them and and what do they do as careers? Especially your father as well. I was like, "Ooh, he's been been and done that." Uh, I I was researching. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, yeah. I mean, my parents were. Um, you know, I wrote a a play about each of them or it wasn't, I wouldn't say they were exactly about them but they were characters in those plays. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, they were, um, I was really, really lucky with my parents Um, and they were, I mean, number one, they were funny. They were both very, very funny. They were both funny storytellers. They were very both I think open-minded and open-hearted people um, that, you know, there were a lot of people who uh, became like second children to them or, uh, or they became second parents to those people. Um, and um, uh, my dad was a, you know, they were sort of on paper quite different from each other and kind of a mis, you know, you wouldn't necessarily put them together. My dad was a German Jewish Holocaust refugee. Um, he came to the US as part of a kind of a smaller American version of the transport. So he came by himself in 1937 when he was 15 years old. And then he went uh, back to w- when he was able to, he was when he was able to get himself drafted by the American army. He was old enough. And also when he first came, he had the immigration status of an enemy alien. And though know, he was Jewish, so because he was German. So he had to wait until that had been removed and then he was able to be drafted. And then he was brought into this program. You know, uh, he talked about this experience. He understood it to be just uh, something that had happened to him in the service, a sort of path that he was taken on. It was only uh, in the, like 2000s, I think, that we realized that it was actually a program called the Ritchie Boys uh, that he was part of. And there were all these other men, um, mostly um, German Jews who had left, who had been brought into this program uh, that the American army had at that time to um, train them in interrogations. And they went back to Germany and interrogated Germans first as, uh, you know, who were POWs and then um, who were detainees after the war ended to to decide who should be tried for war crimes. And this was, uh, you know, this in many ways the defining experience of his life. And, you know, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan where my dad was not really like anybody else. You know, he was a very intellectual guy, but very wry. I mean, rye isn't quite the right word because it feels too cold. He was a little bit impish. And, um, uh, you know, he'd tell you these very kind of, you know, weighty stories with this, you know, this kind of, well, you know, and then this happened and then, you know, the, the, as it turned out, uh, you know, he described himself as a driver, but, um, you know, actually he'd been a Gestapo agent. Uh, you know, So he had this very sort of light, impish, wry way of communicating, and also, uh, you know, he was kind of goofy, had a funny sense of humor. Anyway, and, and then he had this vast historic knowledge in a million different directions. Uh, w- so nobody else, you know, we, we, people always felt like they didn't know anybody like him. And we went to this in the early 2000s, there was this gathering of these guys who had been richie boys. This is the point of this long introduction. And we walked into this room and it was and every one of this guy, these guys was just like my dad. <laughs> they looked the same. They were all like little diminutive little German Jewish guys with they were all wearing a like a navy blue sport coat. They all had that same exactly same kind of approach and delivery it was really really something and it really made me realize how much he had been shaped by that and you know really to cut to the chase of like what it the kernel of what he brought away from that is he had this story which is the, really the centerpiece of my play 2.5 minute ride um where he was interrogating a german uh detainee and you know at that point my father pretty much knew that his parents had not survived the war uh, you know Basically, his whole world had been destroyed. So he's interrogating this guy. And um, as he's talking to this guy, what all of a sudden occurs to him, as he said, if it if I hadn't had the, as he would say, good fortune of being born a Jew, I might have become a Nazi. And that sense of his, not of his victimization, but of his compa- his, not just capacity for, but his complicity hmm. in uh, uh, wrongdoing, that that was the lesson he took away um, that, uh, you know, it, that made him a really, you know, that was a very, I think, unique point of view to grow up with. And it was, you know, sort of lightly told and expressed, but it was really the, 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 the central sort of moral uh, lesson of our childhoods. And then my mother grew up in a Protestant family in a small town in Michigan, in, in Central Michigan. And, um, you know, her dad was an electrician. Uh, they were like farming people. Her mo- her mother uh, a- had grown up uh, uh, sort of hard with an alcoholic father. and um, uh, And so, you know, my mother came from like a you know sort of working class sort of lower middle class midwestern protestant background and just it was just something she's just one of those people there was just something about her that had a sense of right and wrong in the world again like with my father very sort of lightly held you know very sort of embodied and you know not really anything to prove around it um and when she went to college she decided she had you know she'd even though it, it, her circumstances were all white, she became aware of racism. And she realized that there were colleges, there were only a couple of colleges in the Midwest at that time that would admit uh, black people. And so she went to Antioch College because of that, because um, because they would, uh, th- th- yeah, they, they accepted black people. Her, a resident advisor was Coretta Scott who became Coretta Scott King Um, and her best friend there was a woman Quandra Prettyman who actually Quandra died last year, a year year and a half ago. They remained friends for their whole life and Quandra had grown up in Baltimore Um, uh, and my mother spent a summer living with Quandra's family you know in a segregated Baltimore with a Black family in segregated Baltimore and that really changed her life that you know that experience I mean she had ideas but being inside of it and seeing it from that perspective really changed her life and in my play well which is about these things to do with my mother you know I, I call her jokingly a housewife savant you know she became a community organizer just out of a kind of intuitive sense of uh this doesn't have to be this way you know, we, my, I don't need to get into the whole story of how my parents ended up meeting. And then uh, my dad became a lawyer. That's what he did. And he became a lawyer for the state of Michigan uh, for the attorney general's office. And um, they moved to a neighborhood in Lansing that was being uh, redlined and blockbusted. I don't know how much those terms mean there, but it was basically a pro it still exists now for sure. But In the sixties, it was a process of going into a all white neighborhood and basically the real estate industry turning it, getting all all the white people to sell and then selling the houses at inflated rates to black people who weren't allowed to buy in a lot of places. And then the city would basically disinvest. Um, and, uh, And my mother wanted to live in an integrated neighborhood. And so she and a bunch of other neighbors uh, set about to successfully create one in this very kind of very politically savvy way. But part of what was politically savvy about it was that it was very people-centered on a very grassroots level. So that's who they were. And all that to say that they intersected with a, you know some of the major events and currents of the 20th century in these very idiosyncratic ways. And then they were funny characters they were just funny characters so mm-hmm. I ended up writing plays about them
0: well, the other things when you were telling me then about your mother and father they not only strong personalities but not afraid to speak up what what is the right thing and what is wrong and you know and never afraid to, to speak up and face the danger straightforward you know and that's, that's really remarkable to I mean to have parents like that I bet they they told you um, you know, to always keep your head strong, stay high, and just keep going if you believe in something and you wanna do something, you just go for it and don't let anyone tell you.
1: Well, I think it's, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think the thing about that was that my mother did that sort of naturally and my father's, I mean, I think that's the way they fit together, right? My father looked at himself and he was like, he started to notice people And he had stories about people who he had had grown up with, who did what you're saying, who when they saw something wrong, they just said no. They just automatically said no. He felt like my mother was like that when he met her. There were, you know, he would tell the story, and this is also in my play, 2.5 Minute Ride, about, you know, a kid who he, the German kid who we went to school with, who wouldn't wear a a Hitler youth uniform. And he just wouldn't. And my father said, uh, you know, that he also wasn't, you didn't wear one, but he wasn't allowed to wear one, and my father was beaten for that, you know, regularly. But he looked at Loman and he said Loman didn't wear one just because he refused, and he he said that th- he would tell us that throughout his whole life he would think if I had if I had, had that opportunity would I would I have had the courage of Loman? I think my father's thing was that he he had he didn't believe he was a person who had that in him. Hmm. And, and so when he saw my mother, he was like, that's the person I want to be with. <laughs> so I think I think for me, you know, I think we, we behave differently in different circumstances. You know, sometimes we speak up and sometimes we don't. And some people, I think it's true, some people have that instinctive, you know, I'm, I'm working on a project uh, right now that's sort of thinking about the early... It's not about ACT UP, but it takes, you know, thinking about those early days. And I'm interested in this, you know, a moment like that, a moment like we're in right now, you know, where we see, yeah, wh- where you can stand up uh, and and say, just instinctive in you to say, no, 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 that's that's not okay. Yeah and um i think it can be cultivated but i think in order for it to be cultivated if it's not natural in you part of it is to to grapple with the with how how hard it can be and our, mm. and our our you know not assume that just because we want to be that way we will be that way
0: you know yeah it's it's also interesting cuz uh, with my family, I mean, I was uh, for most of my life, I was brought up by my, my grandparents on my mother's side, uh, even though my parents are still alive today. But it was a, a choice of me to go and live with them. And that was mm-hmm. my decision. Um, I found some, obviously, you, you sometimes you get traits from your parents or your traits, but I, I took a lot of traits from my grandparents because they brought me up. And both of them were strong minded Um and straightforward thinking but also very caring and understanding uh people uh still alive today and he's uh, i believe it or not next door into the other room my grandfather's asleep snoring away as we speak but um but the one person that really took g- gave me that sort of like toughness and and it, it's really funny because um my, my grandmother my nan she um she always uh, said to me don't let anyone tell you who you um, who you are, what you are, and what you're gonna do. And her words were, fuck them. It's like you are who you and these were her words. And coming from a grandmother's like, wow, but my Nan was always like that. Ever since I was little, she was like, Fuck 'em. If if you're gonna be who you wanna be, then you can go for it. Tell them to fuck off. And it's like, Oh, and i okay no problem
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, uh all my entire family always say Reese you gotta write a play about your nan and I just went nah she's chill <laughs> <So, laughs>
1: and what made her like that
0: um funny enough it was I think it's because growing up um she's got two older brothers uh my great in Wales I say uh, we either say for our grandfathers Bampi or Grampi uh, but I always say Grampi because it's Great-grandfather, Bill, yeah, he, he was a t- tough man, um, but loving man. I've, I've had the honour to know him growing up. Um, I think it was because in that working-class area as well that when she grew up, and I think as well she just sort of developed this strong personality, and uh, being around two older brothers and a father, I think she just got mm-hmm. that sense of, hmm, that's And we always say, because in Barry, um, the, the, the last name Selby, it, it's a very popular name in the town. And it's always a saying that the Celtics have always been a tough family and, um, and she's one of them. And so it's like, oh, she's a Selby, OI and everything. But uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, but she got that. And um, and it's always my, my, my family have always said, because uh, sometimes she, uh, she would do things a uh, way to show love. Um, and one of them would be, you know, she would shout at you. And it could be the littlest thing. She would shout like, why did you do that? And my band would say, she's doing it because she cares. Um, yeah. And and it's really funny because there's five grandchildren. She's given up on the other four who are the young. <laughs> I'm the oldest. She's given up on the other four, but she, with me, she's got. She's still shouting. And, and I always say to my my band, "Why is she doing that? well I don't get it?" And band just leans to me. And even my uh, my fiance said this to me because she she sort of learned and she went because she still got hope for you. That's why uh-huh. she's still doing it. And I was like. Fair enough. All right, then. Don't bother yeah. me. It was, <laughs> but it was great because um, it's like, even when you talk, like talk about, um, you know, it's, it's like now going in, what's happening in America now with um, uh, Roe v. Wade being lifted wrong, anything. But I remember my nan, she's, she, she's not into politics. She's not into like that. And, um, and I remember, I'll never forget this. She said to me, when, if someone told me, I can't do this with my own body, I fucking headbutt them. And I was like, Go for it, Nan, No problem at all.
1: Oh, yeah. Totally. <laughs>
0: yeah. And she, did, she didn't care, so I was like, "I'll do whatever the fuck I want. It's none of their mm. business." I thought, "Can we get you into Congress? Can we say you're in?" Totally.
1: <laughs> please, please.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Are <laughs> Give you? All the family... in the
0: world? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Is your family from Bari?
0: Yeah. So all my family from Barry. So um, on my well, funny enough, it's a, it's it's funny because on my mum's side. It's a mixture of Barry and Newport because my my bam, uh, grandfather, his family are all Newport based, but they sort of moved into twine, So it's mm. a mixture. But the thing is, my, my his biological father died when he was two or three years. No, four years old, I think three or four years old mm. from uh, tibic- TB, tuberculosis. Mm. And uh, and ironically, my bamp had it. It's weird. I think he said it either a year after he died, he had Mm. it, but he 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 got cured because it ran about that time. Wow. Yeah. So it was it was a bit sad. But then my grandpa Kenny came along. So that's his uh, stepfather. But because he did most of the upbringing, it was his his father, and he was a Newport boy, Royal Navy, uh, Normandy landings, etc. And you know, but he brought him up, and um, and he's the oldest out of. Eight children. Uh, so it's so they get so on that grounds on South Wales area that that's with my nan and my bump and my mum's side. It's all Barry and Newport. Mm. But with my father's side, Cardiff, literally mm. Cardiff all through and through. Uh, but on my nan's side, um, her father was around Somerset area, so they all came from mm. Cornwall area in England. So it was a bit of still kept as South Wales area. Um, yeah.
1: I mean, I've never been to Wills. The thing I really know about it is Gavin and Stacey.
0: <laughs> I was in it. Um, so it, it I were was you? It, yes, I was in it. Um, I was- What it, episode?
1: Because I got to tell you, my partner and I are obsessed with Gavin and Stacey. <laughs> I believe my partner has the whole thing memorized. Like the entire thing. We've watched it so many times I can't even tell you.
0: Right. Um, so the recent episode, so the one they just done. Or the oh one yeah. They, and it's the scene where they're in the pub and because you see my face, you'll see. You go! Oh my god! I hit, I got interviewed by that guy.
1: Oh, so, Amazing! So. And, I can't uh, wait to tell Madeline. She's going to be so excited. She is obsessed. It's one no, of her favorite things in the entire world.
0: But for the life of me, I could not keep my face away from the camera, and you can tell. I mean, you can tell from like, oh, he's looking at the camera. He doesn't. He loves that camera.
1: Um, <laughs> because
0: we we did it for three days. Because the funny thing about filming Gavin and Stacey for someone like me, who's, who was born and raised in Barry, obviously, I bet you probably get it the same in, uh, where, where are you from? Is it Michigan you're from or is it?
1: Yeah. From? from Michigan. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, for, for me, it's like where that pub was filmed, they call it the dolphin and they're saying, Oh, that's on right on Barry Island. But for someone like me, it's, no, it's not. This is the bus, <laughs> and that's on the other side of town.
1: <laughs> right, and, uh, right.
0: and when you watch it, for some of like me, it's like, really? But there was there was a pub called the Dolphin. There was a pub called the Dolphin. It was on Barry Island. It was sort of further up from where it was. So they got it right. But the way it, but it's not there no more. Uh, no more. But um, we we filmed that scene for three days, for The three D scene, and it was roasting. That I mean, it was boiling hot. All three days, and um, and there was all of us in Christmas hats and jumpers, and we're there going, hey. oh God, what is going on? <laughs>
1: and
0: and it was funny because the entire crowd was literally flooding the streets. They literally had to corner off the the entire street because there were so many people waiting for James Corden to come out and Ruth yeah. Jones to come out, and he was lovely. James Corden, I know he gets a lot of shtick uh, from parts here and there, but from my experience, he was really lovely. Oh,
1: that's
0: know. great. Um, but yeah, Gavin and Stacey, I mean, I'm happy that uh, the town of Barry uh, is actually getting, <laughs> getting across the scene <laughs> somehow, yeah. some way. Um, <laughs> uh, I absolutely love it. <laughs> tidy, fair play. Um,
1: exactly.
0: Yeah. But uh, the way the way we speak as well, I'll say this as well, uh, um, the way Ruth Jones does the accent it's a little bit more over the top than nothing. Obviously it's a comedy. So we, we chuckle on with it. Um, right. But it is how we speak sometimes because we do say our oh, tidy or, but the what's occurring one, um, my band was telling me, he, he said uh, the what's part that was because of Gavin and Stacey. That, that's never been a language thing. Really?
1: What's-a-Kirin? Yeah.
0: Yeah. What's occurring? is more of like a, I think what's a is more, I think it's on the England side. I know some parts of it will say it, but with in terms of the, the Barry dialect, it's always been, oh, I loves it, or or tidy, or, yeah, and how sharp. And I, I'll never forget, I, I spoke to someone who was from uh, Boston, and and he was saying, oh, it's, it's kind of like Boston in New York. You know, if you, if you look at the, because uh, Boston is like, uh, they always say bastin or something like that. I hope I'm saying yeah. that. it's like with Barry, it's like Barry or Cardiff. It's very sharp. It's very put, you know, straight, straight right. um, But yeah, it was I'm happy. I'm actually happy now. End of podcast. Let's let's end the mic.
1: <laughs> oh good. I wasn't sure. I was like either it's gonna be good or it's gonna be like oh fuck Gavin and Stacey. You know
0: no no we, we love it. We actually love I'm it. So good. because we, we actually um it, it put Barry back on the map. Um hmm. because from this I won't go on the entire history but um the, the town itself was, was well known for its docks you know the mm-hmm. imports and exports etc and then the holiday makers i don't know if you heard of uh, butlins holiday um in in the uk it's it's a uh, it's basically uh, it's, um I, I don't know what its equivalent to, to what you got in america but it's it's like um, for weekend aways for the saturdays and friday saturdays and sundays a lot of people would go to these holiday camps and everything and and the town of Barry used to have that and Butlins is a big thing in the UK and it was from the six, 1966 to 86 we had this big majestic resort and obviously Butlins left but someone else uh, bought it and a lot of businessmen came back and forth but then coming towards the late 90s and I always say they knew I was coming because I was born in 1996 um, <laughs> that it all the town of Barry just sort of collapsed on itself and um, a lot of things came out of Barry more than they came in, and then we all thought it was like a doom and gloom scenario. And then all of a sudden, uh, the BBC said, "Right, we're having this new comedy called Gavin and Stacey is going to be filmed in Barry." And obviously, at the time, James Corden—I think the only familiar person we knew on that cast was Rob Brydon and uh, Uncle Bryn, because he was a last mm-hmm. comedian. Uh, and then obviously, pff, Barry just took off because the the show took off and um, as you say, the rest is history. So,
1: yeah, yeah. So his thing that he says, I'll tell you for why, is that, um, is, that a, is that just him or is that a Welsh thing? No,
0: I'll tell you for why it is a Welsh thing. Uh, I'll it, tell you it, for it, why. I'll tell you for, that was actually good accent, fair play. <laughs> I'll
1: tell you for why. <laughs> well, we say it all the time. Yeah. We, say it, we just say it, we throw yeah. it into our language all the time. I think that's, I'll I'll I
0: think that's a proper Welsh thing. One minute, right. now here's my.
1: Now we're even. Yeah, now we're even. You look beautiful. Can I call you back? I'm doing a podcast. Oh, but I wanted you to see my Prince Charming because you've
0: you've dis- disappeared. <laughs> yeah, so I'm doing a podcast. Oh, right. All right. All right. All right. All right. I love you. Ah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, she just, um, Emily, she's just Emily's just come back. My fiance just come back from teaching. And they had a Oscar night and she's dressed in a proper dress and everything. So, uh, Amazing.
1: um,
0: but, uh, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll t- I will tell you for why that's, that's a proper Welsh thing. And, uh, but every time, because now, because they are the catchphrases, if someone says it, people will go, oh, I tell you for why, you know, that's going and trust me, as soon as I leave Wales and someone, I say, Oh, I tell you for why, or, um, tidy or what's and whatever people go right oh my god it's <laughs> six. i'm thinking right that's the pain pain in the neck part the rest yeah fine no problem yeah
1: yeah, yeah. and lush lush is uh that's more just british right because stacy says it all the time lush. yeah i think lush. so
0: yeah lush i think lush has always been a thing but um some people have said it's a welsh thing some people say it's a british thing um, it didn't really bother us. I mean, because we all say it's like, "Oh, that's lush," you know. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. The only one I knew that's proper, all the oh, Welsh say it, is "tidy." Um, tidy. My my bam says it. Um, my my nan says it. Everyone says, it. It's like, oh, "Bloody tidy, man!" And um, another one that it's, it's not in Gavin and Stacey, but it is. Uh, it's like a more of the valleys in Wales. The the valleys, what they say, but they they say "butts." They go, "All right, butts." How's it going, but or so tidy, but um, and even though it's it's
1: like but
0: the b o double
1: but
0: what does it mean? Um, so butty buddy,
1: um,
0: yeah. So I like but and it's it's always been part of the valleys thing, and it's sort of when all the 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 people the men from the valleys went to work in the mines down south or on the docks or in the copper area, it sort of grew from there. And then we go, oh, tidy butt. And and uh, I don't know if it's worked in North Wales because they're more territorial with their Welsh. They're very territorial. Um but that that's the with Gavin and Stacey, that's how the language goes. Um I'm buzzing I was like, oh great. Yay. <laughs> so no Gavin and Stacey. <laughs> but going on to so was it was it always going to be playwright? Always going to be a playwright or was acting the first one?
1: yeah acting I mean uh yeah, I didn't really have any plans. I didn't even uh, see a play until I was probably like sixteen years old, except for you know like high school plays. I knew they existed. I made up plays, uh but it wasn't on my radar uh really, and you know, I certainly didn't the idea of making your living doing it i mean would be like. Making your living be an astronaut. You know, it was like it was not it was not anywhere in my orbit. Uh, and then it also, you know, once it once I did um yeah, writing no. I was definitely there was no part of me that was ever gonna be a writer for sure. Uh but then uh, yeah, acting, but it, you know, there there wasn't really a career to be had for me. Um which I was told many, many times. I mean, there weren't that many parts for women, um, there weren't opportunities for women, and there were even less opportunities for uh, lesbians. so um, so yeah, no, it wasn't, you know, I think it's a I think theater is a vocation, and it it chooses you, mm. and uh, yeah. I was drawn to it and I I think the way I came up, you know, uh, because I ended up coming to New York at this moment where there was a very um, rich, active uh, downtown theater scene. And in that world was this lesbian theater collective where I, that ended up being my home for at least 10 years and where I really learned Uh, all the most important things that I, you know, that became the basis of my work and my life and my career. And one of the things that I learned, you know, was sort of the advantage of those doors being closed to me when I came out and being in this place that was absolutely separate from the institutional world from the professional world. What I learned is that you don't need anyone's permission to do theater. You don't need anyone's permission to make art institutions do not enable artists to be artists. They are conduits of resources to artists mm-hmm. um, and, and that's it. Um, so I think that when, you know, p- students, other uh, people that I know when they come up inside of those institutions, inside of, you know, whether they're educational institutions, theater institutions, all of those things there's a lot to be said for having those kind of resources and that kind of support but i think that it can be hard then to understand that um it can be hard to understand that they do not supply they're not the authors of your uh, authority an, uh, an artist uh bestows uh, authority upon themselves. Mm. Um, and I, I feel extremely fortunate to have come up in a way so that that was absolutely clear to me, yeah. that, uh, you know, I might have to do something else to pay my rent, but nobody can stop me from making art and making theater. Nobody can stop me.
0: Yeah. Especially because I, I watched it just recently, I was watching an interview, uh, I can't remember what the, the actual event was but you said something very that that really shows your character as well because uh I put it down in my notes it's like yeah you wouldn't say that at, uh, you didn't get a part for a production in college and uh, the professor said you don't you don't convey any sexuality what's and I mean what's all that about <laughs> we'll convey any sexuality what <laughs> what way <laughs> I, I mean like that really baffles me as well I mean um but Wait, so when it when it comes to, you know, being in acting, I wanna ask this question and it, it's probably gonna sound a little bit co- um, controversial, but I've always wanted to ask other people, especially, you know, people in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, I, I have a friend who's, who's, who's always said that, uh, said this as well, but when it comes to casting for, for specific characters and it comes to, you know, so a character who's probably gay, lesbian, any type of uh, queerness, whatever. Um, they always look for, some people say they look for authenticity, but then there's always the controversy of hiring someone who's heterosexual to play the part. Where do you stand yourself personally on that matter? Do you Are you more for the authenticity of the gay uh, gay actor or gay uh, lesbian actor or gay actor should play gay part or are you more than open for anyone to play any sexual, gender specific role?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, this comes up a lot in writing too, right? Who who can write about about whom, you know? Um, and I I always, you know, the thing I say to play, so I'm going to sort of respond to it in that way, and then come back to it in terms of acting. the The thing I always say, uh, you know, to other writers is, my sense is, nobody cares what anybody writes. Everybody can write whatever they want. Nobody cares. What people care about is what gets produced. If there was equal representation, there was equal opportunity, there was equity in terms of whose work gets put on, I think these questions would go away. You know, we don't, we don't generally, we don't care if an Irish actor plays an Italian actor or vice versa. We don't care because there are plenty of representations. First of all, there are plenty of Italian and Irish actors who have, so let I me mean, back up a little bit here. I think that part of what culture does is it is a kind of a, a scaffold that may, of, of, of image, of narrative, uh of uh, uh, specific you know different sort of uh, specificity of information that makes us visible to each other. So uh, we've seen a lot of uh, there's a lot of culture out there that gives us that gives us that framework about what certain kinds of people are like. We know a lot about, uh, and 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 those frameworks are given to us by all kinds of people inside of that experience. So we certainly know a lot about white men, right? We know a lot about white men. We know a lot about um, uh, Catholics. We know a lot about uh, uh, certain kinds of Jews. We know, um, you know, any number of things. We know a lot about there's a lot of cultural information a lot of cultural scaffolding scaffolding about people who have lived a certain kind of experience that has been given to us from inside of that experience so obviously every person is different everybody has their own specificity but in that way that we uh, you know sort of understand people on their own terms We have a lot of information about some kinds of people and almost no information about other kinds of people. Sometimes there are a lot of images of kinds of people like African-American people, for instance, but not that much that comes from their experience. So if you are somebody from an underrepresented community you can immediately see when you watch something that it's written by someone who doesn't have any, they're they're writing you from the outside. They're projecting. They're projecting onto you. It would be in the interest of all writers to have more of this uh, specific information. You know, the more the more information, the more of that sort of scaffolding there is about different people. The more information we we as writers have to write other people. The more context we have, the more information we have. Um, so it's it's. Uh, you know, it should be something that we we all uh, want. Um, there are some people, some writers who have an incredible gift for listening, hearing, and understanding, uh, you know, just a kind of identification that makes it so that they write about other people in a way that uh, feels like the real thing. I mean, when I watch Gentleman Jack, for instance, which I don't, as I understand it, none of those people are lesbians, that show feels incredibly lesbian to me, feels incredibly accurate to me. Um, So it's not that I think that you have to be the thing necessarily to um, represent it, to write about it, to play it, but I think that when you've been underrepresented, um, it's extremely painful to be. I mean, first of all, just just to. I think I think it I think it makes people you know there's a there's a there's a there's a narrative issue there's a presence issue and then there's a resource issue so part of it is the quality of the representation and the other thing is why don't why can't we get hired why can't we get these jobs why why are those why are those people uh get, you know getting the work playing us instead of us. If there was actual equity in the world, I think those questions would, would disappear. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Then, then you'd be like, that was good or that was bad. You know, that individual performance uh, would be good or bad on its own terms. But I think the reason people so, feel so strongly about it is that there is not equity in terms of opportunity. And there's definitely a deficit in terms of underrepresented groups uh, it, stories told from uh, inside those groups be, being being lifted supported disseminated that that really is the that really is the issue and just I'm sort of repeating myself here but if that equity issue was addressed then it then it, it wouldn't matter it wouldn't matter so much
0: Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalised keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewellery whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts is the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry Fairleigh Morgan, CF 627EB or you can go onto their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk or maybe just give them a call at oh double seven eight nine nine four two four eight trust me it's worth it for the perfect gift the best thing about creative space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in tv film or even theater we also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well so do you want to have experience in making jewelry do you want to pick up a hobby but do not know what to take or where to start, then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware, including rings, bracelets and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering, texturing, shaping and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewellery and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veiljewelleryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at or even phone at zero double seven eight nine seven nine four two four eight. Because because I remember he was um, a friend of mine. I, I won't um, I won't say his uh, name because I don't want to because uh, me, me and him get go quite a lot, uh, a lot And he, he he's played. So I mean he's a terrific actor. He's played some of but I mean in Amdram and he performs in London and he's got um, he's he's played. You know, Seymour from Little *Shop of Horrors*, and he's played—I um, can't remember exactly every single specific character, but predominantly, majority of them that he's played have all been, you know, male characters who have uh, found romantic relationships with women, you know, heterosexual. So when he when he came out and said, um, you know, actors should be a gay, actors should be playing, you know, gay characters and everything. Obviously, now I know now. It's like, oh, okay, I can understand. But it was like, well then I thought, well, hang on a minute, you know, you've played these characters. So how can you turn around and say that, you know, for someone like me, for example, how can I can't play the gig talent? It's because that, you know, it's not for me. I'm not questioning as in say, wait a minute, you can't tell me that. It's more like, well, tell me why. Why is that the issue? And now I know. <laughs> now, now I know. Learn something every day. Uh, and you, you can't pull that. I always try to say, say to people, you learn something every day. You, sometimes you gotta do, um, you gotta get things wrong to make them right in the end. So I'll probably message you yeah. on thinking now I know why. <laughs> <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> um, I think uh, uh, staying on on this particular topic, um, could you kindly um, would you kindly elaborate what the the five lesbian brothers is and what and how was it formed.
1: Uh, Lesbian Brothers is a uh, collaborative uh, theater company. Uh, we came together in 1987. Uh, uh, our motto was uh, commercially viable, yet enchantingly homosexual. That was a funny motto because we were in no way commercially viable. Um, but we wrote um, five plays, five plays, um, uh, and a bunch of other stuff over a period of We were really actively uh, working and performing our plays for about 10 years. We're still a company. We're still, um, you know, uh, sort of messing around, making things and, uh, you know, very close to each other. And um, yeah, the plays are uh, published and they are done uh, all over the world by different companies. And um, uh, yeah so that's
0: that's that's who we are that's how i know now i know from this um from this podcast and asked, <laughs> my uh, my fiance was saying you gotta you gotta get on you're gonna know more <laughs> <laughs> um i think i'm gonna jump to fun home now for a moment and um and funny enough i gotta mention i i like me i don't know the guy's name but he's, he's got a YouTube show. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called uh, Wait in the Wings. And he did a video of uh, Fun Home, how it was the, the background story, the story behind it. And, um, and I, was, I was listening to it and I was thinking this is really interesting to know because obviously I'm interviewing uh, you for the podcast. But um, obviously at this point, you're a well-established playwright and now you're being told... And you you uh, work on a musical? And for someone who's probably not has the experience of writing musicals, but thought I'm going to give it a go anyway, you know, what was what was what was it like to go through that process of making a musical, especially uh, for someone like you had no experience but was willing to go for it? How's how was that journey for you?
1: Well, it was fantastic. I mean, it was very. Uh it was very uh, challenging work um but you know i my collaborator was junin tessori who is uh, i think one of the um you know most interesting most accomplished most knowledgeable um music theater writers around and she's an extraordinary collaborator and um you know a, a, and she has um, you know, she really likes working with playwrights who haven't worked on musicals before, who she feels like have, you know, she she's done musicals with Tony Kushner, with David Lindsay Bear, with David Henry Wong, with me. And um so, you know, I I have loved musicals. I've been in musicals um when I was younger, and so I had uh you know a kind of instinctive uh feel for the form but uh, indeed uh, I didn't have uh, actual experience making them but what Janine knows I, I mean I, I think you know it's a very it's a very interesting form it's a very complex it's it's a I think in all of my work, I've been very interested. I realized at some point in retrospect, I'm very, I'm very formally interested. I'm very interested in the mechanics of theater, how it actually works, what, what the approaches are, what the, uh, you know, what the kind of uh, theatrical uh, languages and tropes and and you know, uh, yeah, what, what the actual, the The kind of presentational grammar of it is, you know. And every piece that I've written has asked a different formal question for myself. I've been trying to figure out some other formal, uh, how to pull some different formal lever. And um, musicals are, you know, so formally. complex they're all about their form what you what the pleasure that we get from a musical is i would say 25% about content and 75% about how that form is um deployed to pull us into a full body engagement and then release uh, or channel feelings of yearning, feel feelings of excitement, feelings of uh, joy, feelings of connection. Um, and Janine, I, I mean, I, I I, feel like in many musicals now, 75% of those opportunities are left on the floor. You know, I don't think people are really thinking that way about musicals And and there's one book that talks about this, it's called Musical as Drama and it's by a guy named Scott McMillan. And he really, if, you know, for anybody who's interested in this, he really talks about um, how music theater, the, the the formal mechanics of music theater s- songs in a way nobody else uh, does. Janine really understands that. And she really, um, I'm worried this dog is gonna bark again because there's people on the street. <laughs> um, uh, it's okay, Albert. It's okay, my guy. Come on. Um, he, uh, she really knows a lot about that, and so it was really amazing to, um, you know, have her, you know, guide us into. Um, different types of songs at different points, the the pace, the, you know, when you needed uh, one voice, when you needed two voices, when you needed everybody together, um, uh, what she was doing with counterpoint, what she was doing with reprise, all of those things, you know, that was just uh, amazing. I mean, I, you know, I didn't go to graduate school in a way my graduate school has always been working with people who are, incredibly skilled in different aspects of theater um who in you know have uh brought out of my uh you know in 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 producing the plays have brought uh you know deployed those skills in ways that i've just been like Wow, you know, just like watching them, like, wow, wow, how do they know this? You know, I definitely felt that way with Jane Howdy Shell and Lee Silverman when we worked on Well, uh, and Mark Brokaw working on a 2.5 Minute Ride. Um, you know, everybody who worked on Fun Home. It was, and I think, you know, it's one of the things that I really, really love about working in the theater, particularly, you know, if you're in previews, you know, and then you're, you have these meetings after a preview and The set designer is there and the costume designer is there and the lighting person and the director. And and I remember, uh, you know, a specific moment where I was, you know, 11 o'clock at night having a production meeting and we were trying to figure out, it was with my play in the wake and we were trying to figure out this one moment uh, of the end of the play, how to make it do this thing that I wanted it to do. And all of these different people were suggesting different things. And I thought, wow, this is really wild, you know. This is, you know, crafts that are thousands of years old. The lighting designer has this knowledge that is so arcane. This costume designer has this knowledge that is so arcane. The set designer, all of us, this, you know, the director thinking about the, you know, the the staging, what that does, you know, none of us, none of us could do the other person's job. And we're just sitting here together, looking at this stage, trying to think, what is it in our tool bag that we could deploy that would make an audi- this audience of 250 people on a series of nights for a month and a half have a feeling in a room for 3 minutes that hopefully then will go into their sort of interior landscape for the rest of their lives if we're lucky that's the goal but this this incredible focus this incredible journeyman knowledge that has been both earned individually and then also you know taken from the experience of many many people passed forward from person to person and and all of us, I don't know. There's just something extraordinary about it, you know. But that's what we do.
0: When I was doing research on Fun Home, especially when the Tony Awards nominations came out, etc., there seemed to be in my head, it, it seemed to me that Fun Home was sort of the um, the underdog musical going into on Broadway because of, from what I can gather, is. Um, because the, the show itself Fun Home was at a theatre that held a uh, capacity of 750 seats, and then you had other Broadway stages that held thousands of people. And then all of a sudden, you're going into the um, the Tony Awards, and and you got the Amer- the American in Paris, which is the classic musical that's been brought back to life, and then you got the Visit, and etc. Did you ever think it was uh, in some ways uh, an underdog musical? for you? Or did you just think, no, this is a... Mu-, or did you just think that this musical was different because it, unlike other musicals where it's all um, a spectacle? Because it's a spectacle, uh, most musicals are spectacles because they're razzle dazzle or they're loud and more atmospheric. Did you feel like because Fun Home was more of a realistic musical that it touches on serious subjects? I, I hope you understand where I'm trying to come from. Uh, because did you ever feel that way? Did you feel that, yeah, this is a musical where we're just trying to bring the audience back into real life here?
1: Um, I, I think it's, you know. I mean, I think there's there's a a, a couple of things. I mean, is your question about whether we thought it would be like how we thought it would sort of where we thought it would land in terms of the the Tonys or the uh, just how it was considered in terms of what its terms of success were?
0: Uh, I think the latter. I think the latter. um...
1: I mean, I you know, I think I think every piece of theater that you make sets its own terms for success, you know, uh, a show like Hello Dolly, for instance, um, is, you know, I went to see the, you know, the revival that happened a couple of years ago with Bette Midler and that musical, does not make a blind bit of sense. I mean, it's taken from, it's adapted from a Thornton Wilder story, uh, The Matchmaker. So they're, they're somewhere in there, these sort of, sort of vestigial bones of uh, an actually quite substantial story. But on its own terms, it does not make a blind bit of sense, right? When she shows up at the Harmonia, Harmonia Gardens at the, at the second act, and they're like, she's back you know they sing hello dolly she's back where has she been we don't even know we haven't even heard of the harmony guards like it just it, it makes narratively no sense and yet those songs are written i mean talk about deploying the levers of musical theater the way those songs build the way those verses build the way it's orchestrated uh i mean I thought like literally by the end of Hello Dolly we were on our we were people were on their feet like we were we were we lost our minds. We were just like literally on our feet like like Ma! like just screaming. We couldn't it was it was a that is like music theater as a conduit for a collective joy. There's also the weird thing about Hello Dolly that has a sort of meta element. It is made for a certain kind of iconic actor, female actor of a certain type. And when she comes down those stairs, it is about the character, but it's also about that actor. Absolutely. Like that is how it's made. It is made for Barbara Streisand, Carol Channing, uh, Pearl Bailey, you know, so that when she comes down, what we, we're feeling something about how we feel about certain Kinds of performers, you know. There's quite a crazy meta thing that happens. Okay, so Hello Dolly is not deep in terms of its themes, and yet it is completely perfect musical on its own terms. Whatever it is, it sets out to do it. it every possibility that musical has to be a million percent itself as it's set out, it absolutely fulfills. So any piece of theater, particularly musical, that does that is a a success. Um, So I think, to me, the, you know, the greatest accomplishment of Fun Home is it had much weightier, it was a much weightier story. It was very complicated. It was very hard to tell that story, even to figure out quite in dramatic terms what the story was. And ultimately, I think the great success of Fun Home was that we completed it. All of the, all of the things that we, all of the possibility that we set in motion we took it all, all the way. Um, so from an artistic standpoint, that was the success of Fun Home. Um, and then, and, and what that meant was that, you know, uh, you know, something that was challenging was actually completely apprehendable You know, what you want is for people to sit down and not be thinking, oh, that's an interesting choice. Huh, yes, I see why they did that. You just want them to be in it. And then on the other end, be filled with feeling, you know? So that there's so many mechanics going on. There's so much work, there's so much sweat and you don't feel any of it. You just get picked up and carried through something. And you're something about your interior, world and also the lens with which you view things when you leave the theater is altered a little bit that's what you want to have happen um and i felt like we succeeded you know and then there was this other thing which was the assumptions about what could be successful and what is um What is, uh, what occupies the center of the culture and what doesn't? So, you know, when we were at every step of the way, people were like, this is really great. I don't know if it can succeed at the next step. You know, I don't know if it can, uh, you know, it, it did fine in the little theater, the public. I don't know how it'll do in the bigger theater. Did very well in the bigger theater. I don't know if it can, if Broadway audiences will like it. Broadway audiences are liking it. I don't know if it can win a Tony. And at some point, you know, we started to ask people, do you, you know, will will people be able to handle this? You know, will people be able to understand it? Are you having trouble understanding it? Or are you, ha- or are you afraid other people are gonna have a hard time with it? Well, it's other people, it's other people. And, you know, we were very lucky to have very courageous, uh, committed producers who just, they weren't afraid and they kept putting it forward, you know? And I think, uh, that was really great. And I think, you know, the Tony's, Tony voters have different imperatives, you know, and, and those imperatives change at different times. Sometimes it's about lifting a show that, uh, will, you know, a bunch of Tony voters are, you know, they're the, they're the, 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 they're in the touring houses so they want that imprimatur so that they can sell the shows in their touring houses you know Uh, but that's not everybody and and you know there are a lot of things at stake and i think that one of the things that happened with fun i don't know if you uh, saw or remember the movie shakespeare in love yes in that you know there's uh, one of my favorite i haven't seen it in a long time but one of my favorite characters shakespeare in love is the producers you know and how as i remember it like the producers who are you know they're 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 worried about all kinds of uh uh really kind of pe- petty, but also um, you know they're worried about the money and and they ha- their egos are involved and whatever. And then when the when the beautiful play happens, you see that the tr- the, the the experience of transcendence in theater is ultimately what everybody is after. To get there, we're after all, we get pulled in a million different directions, but ultimately the true transcendent experience, if it wasn't for that, we'd all be doing something else. It doesn't happen very often, we lose track of it, but when it happens, it's so profound that we keep on doing this thing through a million heartbreaks, bad productions, Sellouts, you you know, you know betrayals, all of it, for that moment. And I think, you know, voting for the when Fun Home won the Tony, people voted for the thing they were voting for. A a, the thing that they felt really mattered, you know, beyond all those other things. Um, And I think that because we had been so because we had done the formal thing that I talked about, because we had actually exploited the theater of it, we had we had paid off the theater of it. I think that is what made um, that is what made uh, people want to vote for it. It wasn't like this show is pretty good and it's about gay people, so we should vote for it. It was like I had a the- theatrical experience there that you know meant something to me, and so so. Uh, but I I think that in voting for it, um, you know, when we were one of the things that we were sort of had an eye on as we were working on it and developing the the um, uh, the ad campaign and so forth was uh, you know the reflexive thing, which is to sort of ghettoize ourselves, right? And uh, I mean, one of the things I said in the ad meetings was I don't wanna hear the word universal because what you're saying is, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. There are some, you know, lesbians and gay people here, but they're not, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It's not really about them. I was like, stop it, stop it, stop it. Own what it is, stop apologizing for it. Stop covertly apologizing for it. And, um, and also this is it, obviously it's not Sondheim, but it is the the, the predecessor in terms of one of the predecessors in terms of being a, a kind of uh, you know more dramatically meaty or weighty piece of uh, musical theater is that we have won a ton of awards. We've you know a bunch of things have already happened. Give us a muscular ad campaign. Don't undersell us, present us as a serious, successful piece of musical theater that people, that has already proven itself. Mm. Stop, stop uh, uh, unconsciously apologizing and reassuring people that the women and the lesbians are not gonna make them feel uncomfortable. Just stop it because all you're doing is communicating anxiety. Now, I, I'm saying this as if we were fighting with this ad agency and that's not what happened. I think that was, an, you know, there, were, there was, that's an impulse that is, is the way these things are often approached. And when we said, don't do that, they were like, great, you're right, we won't do it. But there was no, you know, our, 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 our ad agency was awesome. Um, but I think that's, so that was the thing about the, about, the, about the Tonys, you know, I think there was this reflexive way it kept being like, this is a sideshow to mainstream culture, and we kept asserting, no, 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 no. this is it. this is this is excellent theater or successful theater, what hey, however we want to say it? This is theater that's connecting with its audiences. And, uh, if we hadn't won the Tonys, that reflexive, uh, you know, sort of, Sideshow narrative would have been the narrative. So that was all that to say that the value of winning the Tony was that um, it was the final sort of frontier to say um, this is this was a successful piece of theater in this in this year uh, and and you know after that the year after that the band's visit ravishingly beautiful musical. I saw it like three times. I saw it three times. If I could see it again tonight, I would go. I loved it so, so, so much. Um, it won best musical and there was no question about it. And I think that uh, the band's visit it was about different things, but it was similarly quiet, thoughtful, uh, you know, had a, a sort of esoteric themes, Um it wasn't a question so much about whether the band's visit could win because Fun Home had won the the year before. So I think there's also, you know, sort of, um, and, and what was it that won this year? Oh, right. Uh, uh, it was, um, Michael R. Jackson. Um, oh, the,
0: oh the, the, is it the loop it called? Strange,
1: loop. Strange loop. loop. Right. So it's not, you know, it, it's, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it was less of a question about whether Strange Loop could win, because for a period of time now there have, you know, that has been, we, we've just taken for granted that that uh, musicals that are not the big uh you know, sort of blockbuster splashy musicals um are, are Tony winners, our potential Tony winners. That's you know, now we take that, we're sort of that's in people's minds. Um And so, you know, Fun Home, uh, I think, you know, set that up, certainly for for now, at some point it might switch to something else, you know, these things are changeable.
0: In your views, uh, do you think Broadway has changed for the better in terms of diversity and more, uh, I'll say, encouragement and more engagement? to more um, minorities now than it has been probably back then? Do you think it's improved now? Or do you think, uh, what, what would be your views anyway? Do you think it's improved now? do you think it has? And what is your views?
1: Well, I think there was much better representation this past couple of years, but that's also I was on a panel recently with Lynn Nottage and she was saying this, you know, there was this, This was, you know, the recovery from the pandemic shutdown. The real question is gonna be what happens um, in the next five years, say, Mm. you know? I think, uh, I mean, there's so many structural problems uh, with, you know, Problems with making that happen. You know who who owns the theaters? What is our producing pool? What is the? Yeah, who gets who gets produced? Who gets lifted? I don't know. I mean, uh, I I don't I don't even. I mean I don't know. I don't I don't. We're in such flux. Theater is in flux. Every institution is in flux. The country. It's in a terrifying moment. I mean, what's gonna happen? I I, I you know, I, I think we're, you know, we're on the verge of authoritarian takeover. Um, what's that gonna mean for theater? <laughs> you know, mm. Broadway, the pandemic, these are gonna be the least of our problems. Mm. Um, potentially, potentially. Um so, so I don't know. I mean, you know, there've been some really great things that have happened and then there are other productions that I'm, I look at and I think, how is it, how, how are you getting away with this? Like, how is it possible that you're doing this play or how is it possible that this entire creative team is all white men? How, 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 really? Really? How? So that's still happening. Yeah.
0: Uh, two further questions for you. Now, uh, Lisa, the first one being, what's your favorite Gavin and Stacey episode? And-
1: <laughs> it's, um, uh, it's the one where they go, it's, it's the uh, pasta risotto. I'll have the risotto. Oh, yeah. Risotto. No, the gnocchi, the no. gnocchi. <laughs> that one, that crazy one where they go in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's the one where they find out, oh, that, uh, uh, Smithy. that, uh, what?
0: Smithy's the father.
1: That Smithy's the father, and that she's pregnant. Yeah, um, yeah. That is really a classic, a classic episode of television. There's so many good ones, but we watched that one about a cajillion times. <laughs> yes, I'll have the gnocchi. Who's for the gnocchi?
0: Yeah. Yes. It's you, Bryn.
1: Oh yeah, of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Totally. The um, final question for you, then, Lisa. Uh, I'm absolutely honored to have you on the show, especially to talk about Kevin and Stacy and your career and other things. Um, it's been very a good educational lesson as well. So I really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, how do you so far look back on your career?
1: Oh, so lucky. So lucky. I mean, I just think I've had the luckiest timing. You know, I think, it, it, you know, I started out. In a world where doors were, in fact uh, close to me as a lesbian, um, they were and and, you know, the sort of timing of my career was that as my sort of skills and my accomplishment grew, those doors were literally opening in front of me. And I I mean, and you know, as I said before, like to be grounded in a place where, you know the thing that I have been thinking about recently is you know the thing that we care the most about theater the thing that makes it matter is the thing about it that is non-commodifiable exactly the thing that cannot be commodified and yet we have to pay for it somehow and so to have been grounded in a place where uh that where I was I was just, I, I I said all this earlier, but I just never believed that uh, anybody bestowed upon me the right to make theater, that I, I ended up in this place where we could make whatever we wanted for the joy of making it. Uh, that is just so lucky. That is so lucky. Um, And uh, I've had the best collaborators. And I don't know, I know that my parents felt like this, you know, that, you know, they felt that they had, even though my father had lost so much, he you know, felt that they had lived in a very lucky time, you know, in a world that was pretty stable, where it felt like things were opening up. I'm 61 years old. I feel like that time is That time is end. I mean, that time is ending, if no other reason than uh, environmental, you know, the environmental collapse that's happening. Um, But yeah, I'm. I guess I'm. I mean, maybe if I was younger, I would feel differently. But I'm. It's relief to me to be 61 and not 31. You know, to feel that I have made a lot of things that I cared about. Uh, But on the other hand, you know, to work in the theater, to make things, you know, to make things is to, to have a sense, it's it's a way of relating to the world. It's a way of imbuing, imbuing the world around you with, with, with meaning and in framing questions and, and giving ourselves a conduit to have collective uh, grief or hope or a confluence of, of all of it. And, you know, you can't, at any moment, with an audience, you you have, or as you're working on something, you can only work with what's in front of you. You you m- might wish that you could make that play, but you have to make something out of what you actually have. And so, I really try to think whatever comes to to think in in those kind of terms, a a theater maker's terms, a playwright's terms of, of curiosity and open-hearted meaning making, uh, to bring that to whatever is, whatever is ahead of us, because I think it's going to be very unlike certainly what I have known in my life thus far.
0: Are you looking for the perfect bracelet for a loved one? Would your man be interested in a personalised keyring from his children? Are you looking for the best priced jewellery whether it be a necklace, ring, earrings, bangle or even more? Look no further than Crafted Arts. Crafted Arts is a local business based in Barry within the Vale of Morgan, and they have a range of all the perfect items you need. If it's for the perfect gift for an anniversary, or maybe it's for someone's birthday, maybe something for Christmas, or you wanted to give someone that perfect gift that will last a long time, Crafted Arts. It's the business for you. If you want to know more or see what they have in stock, then you can visit them locally at 29 High Street, Barry, Fairlake Morgan, CF627EB. Or you can go on to their website at www.craftedarts.co.uk. You can even email them at info at craftedarts.co.uk. Or maybe just give them a call at 77 Trust me, it's worth it for the perfect gift. The best thing about creative space is that we don't just want to encourage people in being creative in TV, film or even theatre. We also want you to be creative in a variety of other things as well. So do you want to have experience in making drawing? Do you want to pick up a hobby? But do not know what to take or where to start, then look no further than the Veil Jewelry Workshops. Veil Jewelry Workshops provides the best experience in teaching you how to make the best sterling silver jewelry. They will help you make a range of silverware, including rings, bracelets and many more pieces. You will learn the basic silversmith skills such as soldering, texturing, shaping and lots more. Not only do the workshops provide the experience for adults, it also provides the best experience and fun for children as well. So if you want to learn on how to make sterling silver jewellery and if you're very interested, go onto their website at www.veiljewelryworkshops.co.uk or get in touch with them via email at info at or even phone them at zero double seven eight nine seven nine four two four eight.